Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hi, I'm all about transparency today, so I'm going to tell you that I'm sitting in a studio in New Haven recording this right now, and I sort of don't even understand when you're going to hear it. And we've, we don't do a lot of you know, elaborate pre-recording, but this show is recorded out of sequence, and so I'm very disoriented, which is good because this is a Will Eno play that we're talking about today, and Will Eno's plays do feature quite a bit of disorientation in them. The one thing that I, the rock that we can lean on, though, is Harris Eulin, a guy that you've seen in dozens and dozens of movies and television shows. You may not remember every performance you ever saw because he disappears into these character roles, but we're going to talk to the 82-year-old icon Harris Eulin and playwright Will Eno after this. Welcome. I'm in New Haven. I'm really excited. I'm sitting opposite a man I've seen on stage quite a few times and on movies and in television shows and in my dreams and who knows where else. Walking out in the woods, maybe Harris Eulen is here and he is currently appearing in The Plot, a brand new world premiere Will You Know play that's being done at the Yale Rep. First of all, welcome. Welcome. to. It's great to have you back in New Haven. I saw you here in 1979 in Watch on the Rhine. Yeah, thank you. It's very good to be with you, having listened to you countless times. <laughs> the uh, I know I'm I'm having trouble processing that idea, but so Watch on the Rhine was that went to Broadway. Was that your first Broadway appearance? It was. Yeah, yes. and, you, and you surprisingly were a dark and brooding presence in that Lillian Hellman play. Yes, is that the way you saw it? Dark and brooding. <laughs> well, he I, I you know I don't actually remember everything about that play, but I do remember you. I, you are the person that I, I remember from that play, you as that particular person. Count de um, Yes, exactly. I don't know, so much to ask you about, but maybe the thing to begin, you've done so many roles in so many different ways. The New York Times called you the character actor's character actor, but you also, on stage, are often in starring roles. Is there one particular role that everybody, that people are the most likely to remember you for if you get stopped in the airport by somebody? Is there a thing that they always bring up? Well, yeah, Scarface is probably the most prominent thing people remember. So the word on the street, Tony, is you're bringing in a lot of Yale. That means you're not a small-time punk anymore. Public property now. How do I know you're the last cop I'm going to have to grease? What about Fort Lauderdale? Metro? DEA? How do I know what rock they're going to call out from us? Well, that's not my business, Tony, you know. I'm crossing the lines. Listen, <laughs> you think I want this conversation going any farther than this table? My guy's got families and legitimate cops. I don't want to see him embarrassed. They're embarrassed, they're going to suffer. And if they suffer, they're going to make you suffer. Comprendi? You understand what I'm talking about? By the way, I've got a vacation coming up. Take the wife to London, England. 
we've never been there. So throw in a couple of round trip tickets first class. You gotta smile more, Tony. You gotta enjoy yourself. Every day above ground is a good day. Does that bring back any memories? A philosopher. Who yeah. knew? Yeah, a philosopher. He is, right? Yeah. He, I mean, he's maybe the closest thing in that movie to a philosopher anyway. <laughs> it does bring back a memory, strangely enough. Hello. You know, of sitting there and doing that scene, but I didn't remember the scene at all, except for the first-class tickets. Oh, yeah. Al repeats yeah. it later in a later scene. You know, when you, I want to talk about all the different kinds of acting that you do. When you do a role like that, that is, I think, you know, character acting, is there a preparation process that's kind of different? Are you, in many ways, kind of preparing some kind of subtext for the character that isn't necessarily in the script? I mean, do you have to think through who that guy is? Uh, how do you mean think? Well, I, I guess what, I, what I'm thinking is you've got a, a screenplay in front of you where Mel Bernstein says this and he says that. But, uh-huh. but do you have to begin to imagine a little bit of a life outside what you can see on the page there to get who Mel Bernstein is going to be as you play him? I think that sort of happens subconsciously or mm-hmm. unconsciously or it just starts to happen. I think it happens to all of us. We read a a character, characters in a book or a play or whatever, and you start imagining things. Not maybe not even specifically, just in a feeling sense or in a, mm-hmm. you know atmospheric sense. The role that you're playing now in this Will Eno play, there, we have a problem because the most interesting thing about this role is the thing we cannot talk about. Right. But you are playing a guy somewhat similar to the role that you were playing in Ozark, a guy who is really thinking pretty hard, I think, about mortality, about what's going to happen next. Maybe you could just say a little bit more about this. First of all, you're 82 years old. You're going to be in some roles like that, right? (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't thought of this in connection to the guy in Ozark, who seemed to me a very different guy. Yes, he and Reddy are very different. I I would agree. He seems, that guy in Ozark, I mean, first of all, he's like, in some ways, the most helpful and well-adjusted person in this incredibly dysfunctional environment. If you put him in another environment, helpful and well-adjusted are not words that would come to mind. But in that world that's kind of constantly unraveling for the other characters, he's kind of a rock. Yeah, that's the way my wife saw it. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a bad heart. I need a new one. But I'm 82, so I'm not getting one. My cardiologist tells me that I've got a year... 18 months tops. He's a dothead. Other than that, I've no reason to doubt the man. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm selling the place under the condition that I be allowed to live here until I die. I have a hot plate in the fridge. I can move downstairs. Any luck, we can go weeks without seeing each other. Well, there it is. I understand it's an unusual condition, and I've priced the property to reflect that. How many kids do you have? Two. Girl and a boy. Uh, How old's the girl? Fifteen. Why? We're in a septic tank here, not a sewer line. She's going to chuck her period plugs down the crapper, you're going to foot the roto rooter bill when the tank backs up. I beg your pardon. Period plugs. 
One thing that has become clear to me over the last, say, 15 to 20 minutes is that Paris Eulen, while he's here in New Haven, has gotten involved with a much younger woman. Now, her name is Albertine, and she's like five or six years old. But Will Eno's daughter is, seems mildly obsessed with you. Well, I'd like to think so. But, you know, Albertine has a, a wide range of interests mm. and passions. <laughs> and uh, and so you're just I, one of them. I think so, yeah. yeah. So I, I want to talk about that voice that we just heard. Very nice meeting you. If this isn't for you, let's say our goodbye, shall we? Because that's not, obviously it's not your exact speaking voice. You've dipped down to get a somewhat more gravelly sound out of your voice as you're playing Buddy. Are you conscious of doing that? It seems to be one of the ways you maybe take root in the role. Yeah, I guess so. I, I think most of these things happen uh, of their own accord. Mm-hmm. And most of the time my consciousness is in reflection, uh, you know, looking back on it has to do with uh, the theory of acting, method acting, that Stanislavski's method was all about objectives mm. and playing objectives. What does the character want? That was the sort of main tenet, if you will. And I always think that what the character wants, besides the obvious, is more articulatable on reflection after you do it. It's like mm. we behave certain ways and we say, what were you doing? and say, well, I think back on it, this is what I seem to have been doing, rather than being able to say beforehand. Well, I think that seems right anyway, because that's how we are when we're just being people, right? I mean, I think we're considerably less aware of our objectives, of our underlying motives, than we are with a little bit of distance from them. Exactly. You know, there was a frustration in, in that experience, or the ending of that experience, because... We had a good time doing it, and a, a bunch of wonderful people involved with that, Jason and Laura and uh, the guys who were running the show, and we kind of laid in these things about his past, the character's past, which interested me, and I had, you know, they welcomed participation in ideas and what we were going to do and so on, so I was hugely disappointed when he had to die. We knew he had to die from the first show. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was laid in there, but... It was altogether too soon for my taste because we were just ready to go with his hints about mob involvement, union involvement, Mm -hmm. and I was ready to start talking about uh, the union movement in uh, (laughs) the United States and labor and all of that. Right. And he and Wrighty, your character, uh, you know, both union guys, that's a through line anyway. So uh, we should say a little bit, uh, because we're taping this all in reverse, I've already had a detailed conversation with Will Eno about the plot. But the listeners haven't heard that yet, so we have to come back. And the plot, uh, the title is something about quintuple entendre. There are a lot of plots. There's a graveyard plot. There's a scheme that's a plot. There's uh, other plots of land that are unfolding here. I guess maybe the first question I would have is you probably can pick and choose your roles. So what drew you to this particular script? What what did you like about it? Well, I guess the uh, I guess it's the same with any script, no matter the style or the way it's written. You know, there's just something about it that that grabs you something that feels like life to you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so it did. And then, of course, Will is is Will. There's no other Will. <laughs> There's no one quite like Will. So having seen a play of his but not been in one, I was very anxious to enter this world and see what it was like. 
Well, he has. I think he is a really masterful dialogue writer. His his spoken words. I mean, I, I guess that goes with being a good playwright. But I I love the rhythm and lilt of the the way that his characters talk in his plays. Yeah, well, he would love that because he's a lot about <laughs> rhythm. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, it's it's obviously there that there are just obvious beats there. But you, as an actor, you you must be also very finely tuned to. I'll tell you a very quick story. So you were in Watch on the Rhine with Jill Eikenberry. So I was asked, I'm not an actor, but I was asked to act in this thing that was kind of a vanity production that was going to be done once. And they had hired Michael Tucker and Jill Eikenberry. And then they hired me. And I'm not an actor. And they had, we had to rehearse. Robert Jarrow was directing it. We just had to rehearse for like 24 hours and then just do this production. And there was a moment where Rob, the director, wanted to add a little beat into something that I said. And it took me, I would say, 15 or 20 minutes <laughs> to understand this. Jill Bight, Eikenberry, and Michael Tucker were very patient and quiet and, you know, tried to help me and everything. But, you know, if you're not an actor, you don't – this is second nature to them, to you, is, all right, do this, do that. You know, uh, there must be a lot of things like that where Will, you know, or the director of this show might say, okay, there's a different beat there, Harris, or can you – and you just kind of do that the way musicians in an orchestra do it? Yeah, well, we just uh... – <laughs> Will and, you know, probably me too, are both relentless mm -hmm. kind of people in pursuing <laughs> whatever it is we think we're, we need to accomplish. So just here outside the studio before I came in, mm -hmm. I saw Will and Albertine and we stopped for a moment and he immediately, you know, brought up a moment in the play, which we had been talking about for, you know, a few weeks now and then, mm -hmm. but just how to execute that particular moment, and went over it again. Yeah, you know. So you know, we keep at it. Mm -hmm. What was your question? I, I have forgot. no idea. So um, <laughs> probably wasn't a very good question, but you gave a good answer anyway. I, I guess one thing I know that you, you teach acting sometimes too. One of the things that strikes me about acting that probably people like me have a hard time understanding. We think of acting, and if someone asks us to tells us, "Well, you have to be an actor in a play," we think about noises that are going to come out of our mouths. We're going to make sounds with our mouths. And it seems, watching you, I get the feeling acting is about listening a lot. Yeah. There's a lot of listening going on before you make a noise out of your mouth. Yeah, yeah. It, like, listening is, uh, whoa, yes. I mean, I think there are probably many actors who have said and will say that it's all about listening. Mm -hmm. Well, it's all about everything. But, <laughs> you know, certainly it's it's about listening. And, and sometimes listening is... It's not so easy mm -hmm. because you have to find, I don't know, it's a kind of a comfort level before you can really give yourself over, as it were, to listening. But yeah, sure, listening is, we want to listen. Well, I would imagine also stage is different and special that way, too, because it's night after night after night, and you're listening again, seeing if you hear it a little bit differently, if you should do something a tiny bit differently. Yeah, I mean, you, yes, but in a, a film or TV or something you're filming is the the off-camera presence is pretty important. First time I met Rod Steiger, he said, we did the taxi scene in Waterfront. You was my brother, Charlie. You should have looked out for me a little bit. You should have taken care of me just a little bit so I wouldn't have to take them dives for the short-end money. Well, I had some bets down for you. You saw some money. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody instead of a bum, which is what I am. Let's face it. 
and Rod says he did Marlin, did Marlin's close up, and then turned her a camera around on Rod, and uh, there's no Marlin. Mm. And uh, Kazan, or maybe one of the uh, script guys, is hold, reading Marlin's lines. He <laughs> says, what happened to Marlin? <laughs> Kazan said he had to go to his therapist. <laughs> Rod was still steaming about this 40, 50 years later. Yeah. And, uh, meanwhile, we're sitting in our seats eating popcorn. Going, Boy, the chemistry between those two guys yeah, is incredible exactly. in that scene. Yeah. No clue that Marlon Brando has actually left the building. Right, right. <laughs> I know. All right. We're talking to Harris Eulen right now. He is appearing in The Plot which I, I am, and I'm not doing this in a fulsome or ungenuine manner. You should see this play if you're within the sound of my voice. You should go see this play. It's really, really funny, and then lots to talk about on the way home. I, you know, I think maybe when people think of you, maybe they do think of Scarface. Maybe they do. If they've seen you on stage, they might think of some of these dark roles. But you really also shine a lot in comedy, and we should actually call attention to the fact that you are also in Ghostbusters 2, where you're very funny. Let's listen to you be funny in Ghostbusters 2. Peter Mengman, Raven Stans, Egon Spengler, stand up! Get up! You too, Mr. Tully. Find you guilty on all charges. Order you to pay fines in the amount of $25,000 each. We sent you to 18 months in the city correctional facility at Rikers Island. Evie, she's twitching. I'm not finished! personal note, let me just go on record as saying that there's no place for fake charlatans. Uh, Your Honor? Shut up! Fixers like you in decent society. Your Honor, this is important. You play on the gullibility of innocent people. Yes, sir. Be quiet. But? My hands were signed by the unalterable fetters of the law, and I will invoke the tradition of our illustrious father. Reach back to a pure of justice and have you We're going to talk more to Harris Eulen after this. Oh my God, the Scaleri brothers! So uh, we're back. I'm talking to Harris Eulid, the great actor. He's appearing with a whole bunch of other really talented actors in the plot at the Yale Rep. That's a Will Eno play. So I tried this out on Will Eno, and it didn't seem to make a big impression on him. I'm going to see if I can make a big impression on you. And this is actually something our producer, Jonathan, figured out, not I. So Will Eno's mother was arrested in a protest. I think it was like an anti-nuclear waste protest or something alongside Ed Asner. Ed Asner is a buddy of yours, right? I mean, you've worked with him and done stuff with him. Uh-huh. Is that an impressive connection or not? Or do you find that? I, First of all, did you know that? No, I, I, I had no idea. I have no idea. Will and I are new acquaintances, yeah. so I we have not delved it much into family, right. just uh, very superficially And so particularly far. the arrest records of family, which often come a little <laughs> later in the acquaintance anyway. You know. Yeah, but I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. I, 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 you know, it's, it's cheering news. Well, it also means, I mean, and now it does seem as though a lot of actors are getting arrested again. I mean, 
We thought Sam Waterston got arrested at the Yale Bull a couple of weeks ago. Oh, did he? Was Sam well, he there? Was, he was there for the climate change protest, yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, it's, that's whether, great. Whether he was fully processed by... I think when they realize they've got the law and order guy, they yeah. think, we've got to kick him loose. We can't have a lot of paperwork <laughs> saying we had Jack here, you know. The wrong kind of paperwork. Yeah, wrong yeah, kind of paperwork, exactly. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit more about some of your notable appearances. See, if I were going to bother you in an airport, which I probably wouldn't do, I might bother you about the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, which is I'm just a huge fan of the show. And you played the Potter Familias of more or less the Snyder family that owns the Washington Redskins. 75? Orson, you look fantastic. What's your secret? Well, I have the organs of a 35-year-old Guatemalan gardener. Oh, he died of natural causes. He fell on a shotgun. Thank God we had the bathtub full of ice ready to go. I want to thank you all for being here tonight, especially Stuart and Phoebe, who delayed their honeymoon to Westworld so they could join us. So here's to doing this again in five years, when I'll be 80, my organs will be 40, and I don't know how to do orangutan years, but my penis will be eight. I have several things I want to ask you about here. First of all, you've played any number of bad guys or, or, you know, complicated guys who maybe lean a little bit bad. But there must be quite a difference between having to play someone who is genuinely bad in a very serious situation and someone who is comically bad in a comic situation. I mean, watching you do that role, I think, oh, well, Harris is having a lot of fun. He's really having fun here doing this. Am I wrong, first of all? No, you're absolutely right. I was having fun, but I'm usually having fun no matter what (laughs) I'm doing. Even if you're playing someone genuinely evil with consequences. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't even – I can't even come to mind who is genuinely evil or quite what that means. I just – comes into my uh, a movie called The Believers mm-hmm. John Schlesinger made and I was playing a character who was involved in a cult it is God's will that innocence redeem the world why we give our sons the war in the name of peace attacked by the children of families the false gods ambition lust pride and hypocrisy I was a slave I had no life you have no life God gives you life you give them innocence but is Martin Sheen in this? Yeah, Marty, okay. Marty Sheen. And, uh, I'm getting prompts from the, from the booth here. Yeah, oh, good. <laughs> God, it's great to have that. I yeah. wish I had that. Yeah, I know, I can sound so smart. <laughs> and the character was, uh, it killed his son. And you sacrificed your son to the gods, didn't you? Well, that was my salvation. I was reborn. Well, that's unimaginable to me, really. Yeah. So I don't know what you do with it. You just say, oh, okay, and fit that in somewhere. But I don't know what it implies. Well, you got Abraham and Isaac. You can start working from there and work forward. I know, and I've never understood that one either. No, I don't understand why. I mean, it just seems like a very strange thing for God to be doing. You know, of all the ways that God could test somebody, of all the ways that God could— you know, make his presence felt. And making this completely bizarre and inappropriate request seems, I mean, to me, the problem is with God, not with Abraham and Isaac in that story. Oh, well, see, I'd see the problem with Abraham. Oh, because he's uh, willing you know, to listen to that Well, kind of God thing. is that kind of guy, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, but to that point, I mean, I think one thing that we've sort of learned over time is that, yes, every 
bad guy has a point of view, right? Every bad guy, most bad guys don't, unless it's like Dr. Evil or something, they don't look in the mirror every day and say, I'm a bad guy, I'm going to go out and do bad things. They have a point of view. Yeah, of course. And the one that I was, you know, finding difficult uh, years, many years ago, uh, I met with Costa Gavras, mm-hmm. and he was uh, making a movie or going to make a movie about Hitler. Mm-hmm. And I talked to him, this was many, many, many years ago. Yeah. So I talked to him about playing Hitler. And all I could think of during the meeting was how I was going to explain this to my father, Mm -hmm. you know, that I was playing Hitler. I couldn't find any real justification. Fortunately, he didn't ask me to. (laughs) Problem solved. Yeah. But, I mean, Hitler had some kind of mental explanation for himself that did not involve uh, utter villainy or service to the devil. Of course. Yeah. Of course, Um, yeah. Before we run out of time here, I did also see you in Time of Athens with James Earl Jones here many, many years ago here in New Haven. I'm wondering, who, who are your favorite actors, male and female? John Gielgud. Yeah? Yeah. I, I worship Sir John. Yeah. I sort of, as much as I worship anybody. Did I you guess. ever get to perform with him? No, no. I offered him a part once, but he said, no, no, dear boy, too old for that, too old. <laughs> you do a pretty good Gielgud. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I imitated him in my first... Uh, Shakespeare in New York, which I had on short notice. Joe Papp called me to do take over Oberon mm. in his touring production of schools. And yeah. I had only, I think, three or four days because he was firing somebody and and replacing them. So uh, all I could do was imitate Gilgud. I didn't know how to do it. <laughs> how old were you? Oh, 26, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I bet you were pretty good Oberon, too. Yeah. I could, have you done Prospero? I think you'd be a great Prospero. Yeah, I did it at the Shakespeare and Company yeah. you know, in Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah. About 1980, I think, the same year we did Time mm, and yeah. Lesson from Alice. Yeah. So was Tina, did Tina Packard direct that? Was yeah. It, yeah, okay. yeah. 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 I think I read in an interview that you did that you said that some of these roles, that these classic roles that seem like they might be, well, I think you used Lear as an example, that this might seem from the outside like a, a tormenting role to do because you are playing a tormented and confused and unhappy person. It's actually kind of exhilarating and kind of releasing for you as an actor. Yeah, Say a little I, bit more about that. Well, I, I think that's true because it's all expressive. Uh, you know, it makes me think of that play I just mentioned, which I haven't thought about in a while, Lesson from Allo's, Alpo mm-hmm. Fugard's yeah. play which we did here and on Broadway. And then, and that play I found very hard to do because that character kind of carried the burden of the secret of the play and you know, he was not expressive. Mm-hmm. And, and it was a, a containment that was difficult. Expression in a part like Lear or Prospero or whatever is, mm. is not so wearing, right. you know, I find, because you're expressing it all. You're getting it all out there and whatever it is, whatever kind of pain the character is going through, you make that connection and there's nothing better than letting it out, expressing it. Right. So, I mean, once again, we can't, this circles back in a wonderful way to righty, but maybe not in a way that we can talk about with complete frankness because we'll wreck some things for you. But there's a way in which righty is a little bit closer to Lear in the sense that he's at least telling you stuff all the time about what he's thinking, what he's, I mean, not all the stuff that he's telling us is necessarily exists on, I'm trying to find some way to thread this needle. It doesn't all exist on exactly the same level, but but I would think Wrighty would be a little bit of fun to play that way because although he's holding some things back, he's not holding everything back. No, 
that's very true. He's finding a way to express things mm-hmm. in a, a different way than he might otherwise. That's that's perfect. That's yeah. exactly the way to put it. Yes, Righty himself has become creative. Yeah, in a way, yeah. he's kind of a playwright. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's a great way to think of it. Are there plans for this show? Or is this you're doing Yale Rep, and is it going to go someplace else after this? The, we don't know anything about that. Yeah, this is a, just, and better not to think about things like that. Yeah, yeah, we don't talk about it or think about it. We just do it yeah. for the time we have. I, I think – I mentioned this to Will, and so people might hear it in a few minutes. Uh, I think it's a very, very funny play. I, I've seen four – this is the fourth Willie No play that I've seen, and I think his plays are in general very I – th- I think this is the funniest one. I was in a way – I saw it Saturday night. I was surprised this audience wasn't laughing harder. Well, Saturday night audiences, you know. Yeah. What about be, what about them? Are they they tend to be a bit flat. Yeah. Yeah. Saturday nights. I wondered about who they were too, because I mean, not, I'm sure if you were in the audience Saturday night, you're a very nice person and everything. But I, yeah, I thought I wondered, like, do they not go to place a lot or something? Because <laughs> I was, I wanted to just howl at some of the the language and some of the jokes that that are in there. Yeah, me too. I think they're hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it depends on the audience. Yeah. yeah. Is it – I'm probably out of time here. Okay, I am. But let me ask you one more thing because I think it sort of touches on something you said earlier. It must be different, very different. I mean, you can't ask Shakespeare questions, you know, what did you mean by this? How should I do this? <laughs> you know, it must be very interesting to do the play, and I'm sure you've done it many times, with the playwright on site so you can have these kinds of conversations. Yeah, well, Athel Fugard was yeah. directing his own play, Lessons uh, from Allos. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, at one point, when I was asking various questions or making various suggestions, he said, let's consider the playwright dead. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's another way of handling it, right? Yes, yeah, right. Uh, All right, Harris Yulin, uh, so much fun to talk to you. It's so much enjoyment from your career. Well, me too, and, uh, and I'm looking forward to the next 20 years of Harris Yulin performances. But right now, go see the plot. It's at Yale Rep, and we're going to talk to the playwright in just a second. So before I proceed on to the next interview, I want to, first of all, mention that we're doing this down in our Gateway College studios here in lovely New Haven, and Jonathan McNichol is engineering and producing and doing everything. I don't think I have to thank anybody else. No, that's it. That is, it is literally for once a one-man show here, or perhaps a two-man show. So thanks to everybody who helped us in other ways that I can't possibly imagine. All right, so we're going to spend the final part of the show visiting with the playwright. You've been listening to Harris Eulen talk a bit about being in this brand new Will Eno play at Yale Rep, the plot. Now we have Will Eno, the playwright, here with us. And first of all, I just want to say this must be an unusual time for you. Are you do I have this wrong? Are you not having two world premieres of your plays at roughly the same time? I am, and it's an, it's an incredibly fun and exciting and busy time. And also, it's funny, um, there is a scene in this other play, The Underlying Chris, which just opened down at Second Stage, 
theater in New York where there is a radio interview is one of the scenes. And I, as I look around the studio, I think they did uh, the, a pretty nice job of a radio studio. See, now now I've, I'm glad that this is happening now because if I had interviewed bef- you before you wrote The Underlying, Chris, and then I saw the radio interview scene, and if in any way I felt as though some of the absurdity of radio interviews was being called to our attention... I would feel that it might be me. No, uh, well, uh, I hope you wouldn't feel that anyway. Just because I think it's, uh, I think it's a good faith effort. Yeah, I, I, I just think it's an interesting way to move some information forward. The idea of a, of a radio interview in a play. But anyway, yes. Right. So I want to maybe just begin with the title. The title obviously is not simply a double entendre. It's probably about a quintuple entendre. You're talking about a plot of land. You're talking about a cemetery plot. You are talking about a plot. Maybe you could say a little bit more about the title. Yeah, just that it started in the simplest way of just a a plot in a cemetery or a plot of land that people are kind of scheming about. And then the more I kind of dove into working on the play, the more I really got excited and was really kind of, um, in a way, even kind of moved by the idea of both the history of plays wherein a plot is a major device and also just the, the long history of human beings trying to achieve things on Earth and how when we do that, you know, we can certainly bend things to our will and to our idea to a certain extent, but then there's always, there's other people who have their own plots and machinations that they're up to, and then there's just the force of nature and the force of biology and gravity and all that sort of stuff that is uh, acting at the same time that we are acting. Well, I mean, the play is graveyard specific and also, as you say, general all the way out to the forces of the universe. But let's talk about the graveyard for a second. I attended this with the person I always go to plays with, and she loves graveyards. And in fact, we were in the town of Sligo on her birthday a couple of years ago, and I took her to what I would have regarded as the most depressing and upsetting old Celtic graveyard that you could possibly imagine. And she was absolutely in heaven and enthralled. And, and you know, we're walking around in this kind of depressing Irish drizzle in a graveyard. I, I'm a person, I would visit graveyards as necessary, but not volitionally. What's your relationship with graveyards prior to approaching one in this place? Somewhere between you and your friend, I think. <laughs> um, I, although my mom is a Fitzpatrick and I'm half some version of Irish. <laughs> And I finally, I had not been to Ireland until I think it was 2011 I took a trip over there. And I can't remember, I was just trying to think of the name of a place. I visited a graveyard that was so moving, and I I got there accidentally because I think I was trying to get to some other place. But I had one of those. It was a rare sunny day in Ireland. And, um, you know, I do find the places quite moving just because on the one hand, there's the, the, they represent a certain amount of turmoil and, uh, and grief and uh, people uh, rending their clothes and all that sort of stuff that goes with death and loss. But then they're always, almost necessarily, they're pretty contemplative places and and often naturally beautiful places. And they often, you know, just the idea of a, a, a cemetery in slight disrepair is a sort of a metaphor of a metaphor of a metaphor because, you you know, it's these people's lives being honored, but they were honored 300 years ago or 500 years ago or whatever it is. So you just see the force of, you know, rain on stone and things like that. So, yeah, it certainly struck me as metaphorically a a tidy place to set a play about human endeavor (laughs) and also just a a beautiful place and a a quiet place, too. Well, it's an interesting question who they're for, right? And and so... 
the character played by Harris Eulen in this play, Wrighty, I mean, he's approaching this as a, as a place for him. He talks about it anyway in the early parts of the play as a place for him to be buried. But graveyards, I don't know how useful they are to the people being buried in them. They're more probably, I mean, that's a very sort of hopeful thought that the graveyard would be meaningful to you after you die. I mean, graveyards, for the most part, are, are for the people who haven't died yet. That's true. And it, it, it is interesting to think, if you do think of it for yourself, then the idea of uh, sprinkling your ashes in the Atlantic Ocean is, it's, it's, a, it's at least, a, that's even, if it's a hopeful thought to have a spot where you might be buried, it's even more hopeful and in a beautiful way, kind of self-aggrandizing notion to say, ah, the Atlantic Ocean is the only fitting resting place to contain <laughs> the history of, of me on Earth. Now, I've, I've seen a total of four Will Eno plays, and that may be an inadequate sample size, but I felt as though this, first of all, I should say, not by way of ingratiating myself with you. I really loved this play a lot. I saw it on the second night of its previews, so it's obviously a thing that's still cooking on the stove a a little bit. But I really loved this play, and it seemed to me, tell me if you think this is fair, it seemed to me a little bit more grounded than other Will Eno plays that I've seen. I guess that sort of sounds like a pun since we're talking about graveyards and and burial plots. But, But what I mean is from beginning to end, it mostly seems to be operating on a pretty consistent plane of reality. You know, there isn't quite as much of the absurdism that you maybe are noted for? Or does that strike you as a completely inappropriate thing to say? No, entirely appropriate and very kind and very uh, thoughtful. And uh, I accept it all. And I think that's I think that's right. I think I was much more concerned with just kind of consistency of all the different kinds of consistency that you can uh, strive for in writing something. This is just a side rant. If uh, mm-hmm. I, I, When it comes to absurdity, you know, I just saw someone had said something about a play, Middletown. Mm-hmm. And, and thank you also for seeing, seeing four plays. And I think that's <laughs> probably a great sample. And so I, you have the authority to opine left and right as far as I'm <laughs> concerned. Um, but someone was talking about this play Middletown, which has a short scene, which is an astronaut from this town of Middletown. And he's, we hear from him as he's floating over the earth and talking about his town and the earth. And this was cited as an example of absurdity. And I really, I just particularly bristle at that term. But that in this case, I just think that's not absurd. That's something that human beings achieved 50 years ago. Mm. And it, it was a culmination in many ways of mathematics and logic and the beauty of human imagination and all this stuff. And all I did was incorporate that onto the stage, which in some ways I think is just brute realism, really, to have an astronaut having a look at the town that he grew up in or, or thinking about the town that he grew, grew up in. Anyway, so that's, like I say, um, I, that's wonderful what you said, and I th- and I hope that's the case because I really meant it to just be pretty straight up. Um, here are the people, here's the house, and here are the people sort of stuff. Right. I should uh, tell you as an aside that astronauts are the only people who are banned from the show. We do not allow astronauts on this show. Oh. But you're allowed to talk about astronauts. Okay. You can okay. talk about them for the rest of the interview if you uh-huh. want. I prefer okay. that you didn't. Okay. But um, So when I saw the show, I saw the show on Saturday night. It had been played to my understanding, before an audience, once before the previous night. And I thought, I mean, I find your plays very funny. I thought this was maybe the funniest 
play that I, of yours that I've seen. I saw Middletown, I should admit, at the Yale Cabaret where you can like, have wine right at your table. So I don't remember Middletown quite as clearly as I remember your other plays. But I mean, I was laughing all the way through this play, but it was a preview audience. I thought they were a little reticent. I, and I'm wondering as a playwright, as you're watching a play grow through previews, like I just thought I, I, I was starting to hold back my laughter because the people around me weren't laughing as hard as I thought they should. Is that Are you listening for that? Do you care about that? Are you worried about that? I think the thing, what definitely have done some writing over the past couple of days, and I know we've uh, re- rejiggered some things. And one thing, you know, I, 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 I hope it's a funny show, and I hope people are finding it funny. And I think we maybe had some stuff that was sort of suggesting or might have been encouraging uh, some feelings of reverence what with respect to the nature and natural sounds and stuff like that. So we've definitely been scuffing that up a bit in terms of the transitions and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So I hope it... Uh, I do think it's very funny, and thanks very much. And I think the actors are doing a great job with playing it really straight to be funny. And also, I just have to say my daughter here has joined us in the studio, and she's doing her alphabet uh, over there. And the most those are incredibly detailed A, B, C, D, E, F, G, Albertine. Uh, anyway, right. uh, Albertine also- is a, an additional guest on the show today, and if she feels as though... There's something she needs to chime in about. Possibly she will. Oh, yes. Yeah. There's also there's an amazing drawing of headphones and a microphone already that I'm glad to have as a record of this time here. I do. I don't know if astronauts being banned from the show <laughs> and uh, and you throwing them back over the Yale Cabaret are connected in any way, but I connect that those two things in my mind somehow. That there was some <laughs> massive brouhaha. But yeah, they could have been. Yeah. There could have been an astronaut sitting near me yeah, that night yeah. and things didn't go well. It could have been Buzz Aldrin sitting uh-huh. at the next table. He's a big Willino fan. People uh-huh. know that. So one of the things that I love about your work is the way that you use language and particularly as playwrights tend to do the way you use spoken language. And I just have to assume that you're a very, very careful listener I mean, I don't know, if you're sitting in an airport and people are talking, are you, are your antennae up? Are you listening for little verbal tropes they might be engaging in that, that you'll want to steal? Kind of kind of yes and no. And certainly Albertine here, my daughter, she's done a wonderful thing all, all your life in kind of joking around. You would say, pretend you say, and then you would come up with a thing that you wanted me to say. You know, I always loved that. And, and righty right toward the end of the play has something about he he uses that particular construction of pretend you say so certainly it's so fun hanging around with Albertine as we both move deeper and deeper into the English language I mean there's just for, as an example there's an awful lot of language in this play so if I quote one line I don't think it'll mess things up so the, there's this character who's this rather cynical and for the most part conscience free real estate developer and at one point he's trying to make some point to I believe his young protege who's also a little bit more than his young protege and at one point he says the world is the world and she looks at him and she says something back and he looks at her again and he goes the world is the world I was going to say something else, but actually that one, that pretty well stands or something like that. I may not be quoting it. But that, to me, uh, I, I'm even trying to th- imagine the writing process that leads you to do that. Are, are these voices just kind of in your head as you're thinking through these characters, as you're trying to create these these kind of verbal moments that happen in your play? Is it just kind of all, I don't know, percolating like a coffee pot up there? Quickest, truest answer is probably I don't know. And I was trying to remember that moment. And I I love the way Stephen Turner does that yeah. line. And I think it's something like, you know, he says at some point the the world, yeah, patience, patience. The world is the world. She says something, and then he says, yeah, just but remember, um, yeah, the world is the world. I was going to say something 
different, but I think that was actually pretty good or yeah. something like that. <laughs> yeah. um, so I, I, don't, I don't remember that exact moment of writing that thing, but it, it might have been really truly just a dramatization of me sitting there mm-hmm. and thinking, <laughs> uh, what's a better way for him to say that? And then just sort of articulating that moment that was me sitting there thinking, oh, you know what, actually that's pretty good. Let, let me leave that as is. Talking to Will Eno right now, playwright, his play The Plot is playing at Yale Rep. I also wonder for you, so I saw Tom Paine, which is a one-man play. It is just one man on stage talking in a very discursive and interesting way. So, our story, boy loves dog, dog loves boy, no question, no amendment, no need to revise. And so, our young man to a city the next day at the city morgue where he was painting the bathrooms he saw her i saw it in san francisco and i'm thinking it might be a production that you never saw I'm, I'm, but i'm also wondering if you see let's say a staging of a play like tom Paine, what is that like for for you to hear maybe a different actor that you've had maybe a little less time to react to in rehearsals and, and i mean do you have actors making choices that strike you as, oh, no, that is not, that's not the rhythm I wanted that in, or that's not how I wanted that set, or that his emotion here doesn't really strike me as correct? Or are you just sort of cool with what anybody does with what you've written? Um, probably not cool with anybody just doing it. <laughs> okay. um, and uh, was that at the Cutting Ball Theater? I, it perhaps? was in the Tenderloin. Right, okay. Yep. It was like scary outside. You walk outside yeah, right. of and it was scary. Yeah. yeah, and maybe 10 years ago yeah, or something yeah, like that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that guy, was. I thought he was really good, okay. whoever he was. I happened to be really involved in that production, okay. really, really involved, and uh, I thought he was not a person I had known before, and mm. I, there was a friend of mine out in the Bay Area who I thought would have been great, but they, they cast that person in the... I thought he did a, a good job. So I typically am either really involved or not evolved at all. It, mm. it, it might have sounded like I said e- evolved, uh, <laughs> and there you go. So I have a couple of times with some foreign productions, maybe actually saw it in Finnish, and I had not been involved in any way. Um, and it, that really was, I mean, I wrote it, and I went over the translation with a native Finnish speaker, so I was at least I was aw- aware that it, tracked pretty well the original but I could not have told you within 30 minutes of where we were in this one hour long <laughs> experience just because I think Finnish and English share the word sauna and that's maybe it yeah but that must be also odd to listen to people laugh laugh or gasp or react and, and you don't really know what they're laughing or gasping or reacting to because they're Finnish right yeah or um yeah, and also to hear people sit in s- stony silence, and you don't know what they're sitting in stony <laughs> silence in response to. Well, that could be just a Finnish thing, sitting right. in stony That's silence. That's true. That yeah. could be the national pastime there. So <laughs> I want to just, since the, the beginning of the show was, I should just be honest. I sort of believe in being honest about stuff. So we're actually recording this show out of sequence. I'm talking to Will you know, right now. Then I'm going to rec- talk to Harris Eulen, whom you have already heard if you've been listening to this entire show. So, because why pretend? Why, why be fake? I should ask you a little bit about Harris Eulen. He plays righty. He plays a, a union guy who appears to have a real affection for a couple of very specific places. One of them is his graveyard. This is, a, you know, Harris Eulen is just a kind of legendary guy. It's going to be kind of exciting to have him in your show. It is a, such a total thrill. And I had not worked with Harris before. My wife reminds me he was the doctor on Little House in the Prairie, and she remembers him from that. And he was everything. No, it's incredible. Yeah. Boy, he, I, you know, I'm glad you just said that straight up, that we are out of sequence a little bit here, because I can't wait 
But I, I had such a blast talking with him the other night. And it, it, these stories, he, he does not beat you over the head with these stories. They sort of gently, slyly come out yeah. as you shoot the breeze with him. But he talked about doing a cabaret with William S. Burroughs in Paris, that, mm-hmm. where they'd both sit on sit on stage on little stools. He talked about Norman Mailer chasing him around, trying to get him to play the Norman Mailer character in the in the play Deer Park. He's an absolute joy, and he's an ama- he's an incredible inspiration. At I don't know if he's eighty two years old. Or he is eighty two. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know if you and Harris Eulen have discussed this or not, but there's a there's a connection, and the connection I think would be Ed Asner. Your mother was arrested at some kind of protest in the company of Ed Asner. He and Ed Asner, I think, are old buddies and have done projects together. I'm sure, and like you say, Harris has done so many great, great things. I'm sure it's almost like the um, Kevin Bacon game. Yes. But it's almost try to find someone who is not, (laughs) try to find someone you cannot connect to Harris. Or if you're playing the Kevin Bacon game, go to Harris Eulen right away. See if you can make it. Right. It could be just like a one-stop thing. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, my mom did, I think it was out in Arizona or um, I can't remember, forgive me, but it was protesting a federal nuclear waste site Mm. somewhere in the Southwest. And I think she ended up on the same bus as Ed Asner as they were all being carted off to wherever they got carted off to. Well, I want to ask you one last thing or, or make an observation and, again, have you reacted to that? I should, first of all, say that Jonathan McNichol was the person who figured out the Ed Asner thing, and he's now pointing out to me that Harris Eulen and Kevin Bacon have never worked together. So ah. don't imagine that it's, there's some kind of express train in that game that you're going to automatically mm. win. No, I just wanted to observe. Like I was trying to come form a picture having seen – Four of your plays, three of them sober. Like, who was Willie No going to be? And you're not who I thought you were going to be. Huh. You seem very gentle and pl- – I was p- picturing someone much more tortured somehow, someone, you know, wrestling with angels and demons. And um, you know, I might have I, – I, that might have been my 20s and 30s. Um, <laughs> and I think I just – I didn't start figuring things out. I think I just started going a little bit easier on maybe on myself and on the world. And then certainly – this person, Maria, my wife, and I have, it has been just a just one joy after another hanging out with you yeah. over there, Albertine. Right. She <laughs> is, by the way, dressed more or less, <laughs> Albertine is dressed more or less like an angel today. So yes, it, it, yes, this is, uh, wait, someone said, are you a, a snow princess this morning? And what did you say? Elsa. Elsa, yeah. yeah. Um, Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. That's actually a prepared statement. Right, yeah. I was saying, yeah. are no, you going to say anything? I was going to say, are you yeah. going to say anything? And you said, I might just say, Daddy. No, uh, she had our lawyers go over it right. beforehand. Uh, good. Uh, I don't, uh, you wanted me, I can't remember. I don't know. I guess, I guess what we're really saying is that if Samuel Beckett had, had a sweet little girl who dressed like an angel or a snow princess, you know, maybe maybe he would have been a different person a little bit later in his life, too. Right. You know, I, you know, I think about that guy. You know, that guy lived to a very long age, and he worked all the way to the end of it. And I, I think, and I, I'm less and less interested in any any connection between, or not connection, but, uh, you know, I think mm. I have a similar, a dis, I th- think I see the world differently, and I feel the world differently. That said, I think there's a certain amount of kind of impish glee in that guy's work. That, oh, yeah. You know, and there's some real joy, I think. Right. Hello, wow. kid. Hey, kiddo. Um, but anyway. 
Yes. Well, first of all, if you're listening, go see the plot. I mean, it, it, you really will have a very good and very interesting time. And you'll have a lot. To, like we had to drive back, you know, 50, 55 minutes to get home. We had a lot to talk about in the car. Mm. So go see the plot by Will Eno. And can I just for at, at the at, at the very least for the great, great work. I mean, it's an incredible cast, incredible direction by Oliver Butler. And Harris just really is. He's he's a he's an amazing he's an amazing person to be doing what he's doing. And with such sweetness and such seriousness and all that. All right. Well, you know, thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening today. Thanks to Jonathan McPants for getting us all organized down here at Gateway. To Steve Padla from Yale Rep for ushering people around and making it all work out just great. Uh, Enjoy your weekend.